we wanted anybody that picked up the phone to be able to help the family as efficiently as possible. So if a family is calling about death certificates, we don't need to take a message from them and like get to that to their funeral director. No, we just need to pick up the file, whoever's answering that call or in the database, see exactly where those were at and give them the answer. We need to cut the back and forth. There's no way to be as efficient as possible and handle that many cases with all that back and forth. Like literally administrative assistant picks up the phone. They want to know if their loved one has been cremated. Tell them the answer. Just give people the information that they're looking for as soon as we can. Welcome to the Direct Cremation Podcast with your hosts, Tyler Yamasaki and Will DeMichaelis. The goal of this podcast is to bring to our listeners unique perspectives in death care. We want to talk to people who have had special experiences or experts in specific areas that affect the profession. Our next guest was the general manager of Cascade Funeral Directors, or better known as Crown Cremation Burial in the Portland area for 10 years. With her as manager, this company grew to seeing over 5,000 cases a year. Shortly after the acquisition by Foundation Partners, Ashley moved to helping customers grow and operate their funeral businesses as a client success manager with Parting Pro. I'm so excited to talk with her and think Will might have a few things that they can relate. So please welcome our guest, Ashley Jones. Glad to be here. Hey, Ashley. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for being here, Ashley. First, do you think you can start off by giving us your journey and path today in death care? Sure. Ultimately, when I made the decision that I wanted to be a funeral director, I was deciding between what schools I wanted to go to. It was either going to be Mesa Community College, who had a program, Denver, I think Arapahoe College had one, or Portland. And I was living in New Mexico at the time and ultimately decided on Portland just because I didn't want to be in the heat in Arizona. And I don't know, Denver just didn't have as much appeal to me as Portland. So I headed up to Portland where I went to Mount Hood Community College and did my schooling there for my funeral director and embalming. And ultimately started working for Cascade Funeral Directors, did my apprenticeship there. And then after I got my license, which in Oregon, it was a year of an apprenticeship. So you meet with, you know, X amount of families. And if you're embalming, you, you know, need to be able to embalm X amount of cases and got through that and was at one of the locations there. So they have six locations, which were their more low cost cremation oriented businesses and then two traditional funeral homes. So I was at one of the locations and then ultimately managed that location for a year or two and then moved over to kind of our main location and managed that location for, I think, a couple of years. And then saw, you know, there was a need for more management and I it was an opportunity that I was looking for. And so I was general manager, I think, for the four years prior to me leaving. I was in the general manager position where I managed all of those ultimately eight physical locations, rooftops, whatever you want to call them, but was in charge of all of the funeral home staff. So all of the admin staff, all of the funeral director staff in those funeral homes. So at our biggest, we were probably, you know, 26 to 27 staff. And then through COVID, as things got slimmer for everybody, we were about 18 or 19 staff members that I was managing on a daily basis. Wow. What was it like I know this is an open-ended question and I asked Will this too, but what was it like for you managing such a high volume of cases? It's challenging because you're managing a lot of staff trying to serve a lot of families. So it's a lot of logistics. It's a lot of, okay, how can we do this efficiently and not only 
be efficient for our families, but be efficient internally and be able to coordinate a cremation time. Like we were three or four day turnaround on cremation. So once we had paperwork and were ready to go, we were operating really efficiently and that we could get a cremation done quickly and turn that around for a family. So we were really, really focused on efficiency. Let's get as much stuff done as we can when we're with this family as possible. So a lot of it on the back end was like coordinating how Mm -hmm. can we be efficient, redoing a lot of our forms and things like that so we could streamline things. Like, can we turn three forms into one? Do we really need three separate forms for this thing? Just making that efficient on that side was a lot of it. And just trying to keep everybody in the loop was a big part of my job with managing that many people is if we're rolling out a new policy or a new process, how do we roll it out efficiently so it's understood by everybody and then in turn implemented? That was one of the biggest things I feel like I dealt with daily is, you know, when we're implementing those processes, following up, making sure they're getting done, making sure they're understood by everybody, making sure they make sense for our families, that if we're getting a bunch of feedback or questions about one specific thing, then we're probably either not presenting it clearly or it's just not the right thing and we need to make a change. Well, did you feel like that is kind of similar to what you were doing? I mean, logistics is not something you would think of having to do when you're running a traditional or normal funeral home of normal volume, right? Mm-hmm. Every case generally requires you to like reverse engineer from expectations, how you can achieve everything in that timeline. And like Ashley, our turnaround time for cremation was, yeah, like three to five days. And a lot of discussions about ways that you could pick up information with fewer c- points of contact with the family. So that's how we were thinking about it is how do you get all the information, payment and forms from a family with the fewest amount of contacts, which allows each funeral director or arrangement counselor to have more contacts with different families per day. So I want to dive into that a little bit. I know you said, Will, how can you eliminate contact with the family? And I know there's going to be people that are listening to this Mm -hmm. who (laughs) are going to think that that is taking away from the experience. And I want to also ask Ashley, that kind of has to be a premise of being able to handle thousands of cremations a year with multiple staff. So do you feel like that cheapens the experience? Do you think families actually need or want that level of contact that is traditionally done? The best example I could give is an example of two conversations. You can greet a family, express your condolences and send paperwork to the family. And you can omit that the next conversation upon completion would be a review of the paperwork, going over payment and collecting payment. You can omit that from the first conversation. And if you do, you're somewhat inviting more conversations in the future for that family, rather than taking the additional two to four minutes on the first conversation to explain on the front end the entire process that the family will go through from this call through the next two weeks when the cremation will be done and the ashes returned. And we found that conveying the entire process or the majority of the process in on the front end made families more comfortable with the entire process from the start. And therefore, with that comfortability came less questions from the family overall because we were doing our job better in terms of our communication with them so that we can maximize our efficiency in our communication. That's how kind of we approached it, I feel. 
Ashley, what do you think? Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't think it cheapens it or takes it away. I think what families are looking for is efficiency. So they want to be able to have that funeral home a provider be able to know what they need, come in, ask for the right things, get them the information, tell them the next steps and do it quickly. Even families that we would come in and meet in person, I mean, if they were decided on what they wanted, it's a relatively quick process. I mean, you're collecting some information, vital statistics. Mm-hmm. It's not that it's just dry. You're just coming in and say, okay, fill out this form, fill out this form. No, you're still personable and you're still having that experience. But I also think the other thing that's changed is consumers, customers are not looking to their funeral director to be some kind of listening ear or counselor or something like that. They're looking to their family. They're looking to their friends for those things. It's not, well, I don't want to say as big of an experience, meaning like the arrangement conferences maybe as it once was. It's more transactional. And I don't think that's the funeral home pushing it to be transactional. I think that's the consumer. I agree. I think there's a reluctance from consumers to be oversold in those types of conversations. So they come in with what they want and an idea. And I think they really do appreciate the lack of a sales pitch a lot of the time. Someone that's really on their side and an advocate for them in the simplest way possible and not overextending themselves into their grief and so on. Yeah, exactly. It's like there's almost a boundary. You don't necessarily need to know Some people don't want to share their entire story about how their loved one died and that it was a drawn out illness and all of this. They kind of just want to come in and get what they need. And they're looking for somebody to just tell them what they need and to be able to kind of get it done. I think that's what it comes down to. And again, that doesn't have to be cold. You can do that in a very sincere and kind manner, but do it efficiently and quickly. And I think we so often got the compliment that you guys made this so easy. That was the biggest compliment we could get. You just, we wanted to make it simple, make it simple, make it easy. Don't have to oversell. You don't have to fluff everything up. It's just simple. It is what it is. And I think long-term customers (laughs) acknowledge the credibility in that approach. And I think it served to help our business grow, especially with hospice networks and such, knowing that they could refer to families and that's exactly the experience that we would give. And it reflects well on the hospice worker as well. That was the exact next thing I was going to say is that it's not only the families, it's those hospice workers. They come to understand a lot of the hospice workers are doing the um, the shopping for the family initially. They're the ones that stepping in and calling the funeral home. And then once they get to know you, they'll stop calling and just say, this is what this funeral home has to offer. They'll give you just what they need. They're not going to sell you on anything. This is all you need. And the funeral home or the families are kind of geared up for they just need to bring their death certificate information. This is the cost of things. They'll be offered things if they want them, but nothing's going to be forced on them. It's not going to feel salesy. And once the hospice workers have that confidence in you, that's ultimately how we built the business. Yeah, same with us. One thing that was really interesting when I've talked to both of you, and I know you guys completely independent businesses, but the segmentation of duties and specialization of your staff was not only well done, but it was almost crucial to the ability for you guys to do such high volume. Would you maybe talk, I mean, you don't have to give any of the secret sauce or anything like that, but if you can maybe share a little bit of how the staff was segmented, because I'm assuming it's going to be very similar to what Omega Society was, Ashley. In our funeral homes, we had admin, administrative assistants, and funeral directors. And then we had our embalming and crematory staff, which 
they would take care of the prep and the cremations. And then we had our transport team, which was independent in their own. They did all of the transportation. So they did the removals from homes or hospices, wherever that decedent was at. And then we also had a vital statistics department that did vital statistics for us. So they were able to input everything into EDRS and communicate with our funeral homes about that. And then we had a call center, which was an in-house call center, basically, that answered our calls. We never used or outsourced call center duties at all. So when we could get all of those good. pieces functioning properly, that's what ultimately made us as efficient as we could be, is that everybody could kind of hone in on their job, where in a traditional setting, you may have the funeral director going out on the call to do the removal, then coming back to meet with a family, also embalming that mm-hmm. person if that was required or following through with cremation and mm-hmm. working that service if there was a service. Um, so really that funeral director is tied to that family in a quite literal sense. Like they are their person, right? They're the ones that are answering all their calls, returning all their messages. Another major thing that we did was we wanted anybody that picked up the phone to be able to help the family as efficiently as possible. So if a family is calling about death certificates, we don't need to take a message from them and like get to that to their funeral director. No, we just need to pick up the file, whoever's answering that call or in the database, see exactly where those were at and give them the answer. We need to cut the back and forth. That's really what it was. There's no way to be as efficient as possible and handle that many cases with all that back and forth. So we really wanted like literally administrative assistant picks up the phone. They want to know if their loved one has been cremated. Tell them the answer. Just give people the information that they're looking for as soon as we can. Yeah. I could never fault funeral directors for using answering services, especially off hours in the middle of the night, like being glued to a business 100%. I think the old guard would say, you know, that's how what you have to do to run a funeral home. But I think in general, I can't be super healthy. And what I found super interesting between both of your businesses is that being able to answer the phone and having someone that's really well-versed with being able to get the case information, but able to talk to the family is super important. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the first exercises I did within the first six months of working in the industry, which was at the guidance from my boss, my aunt, was to call at least five of our local competitors and just ask for a price for direct cremation. Ask the first person that answers the phone a price on direct cremation for an at-need call. (laughs) One out of five could give me a price. Those four cremation facilities or funeral homes lost that call because they let it go. And we, we knew, and Ashley clearly knows, that it makes or breaks you if you can get on the phone from any person at any position at your company can answer that phone and answer those questions and make someone feel that they've gotten a complete answer, whether it's their funeral director, arrangement counselor or not. They want the answer. And if you can give it to them, that's value. That's a valuable experience. Absolutely. And you have to take away that, well, that's the funeral director's job. Nobody's stepping on your toes to give prices out. Even if we have a driver out on the road and somebody's talking to them, give them the price if they want it. Give them the entire GPL. Don't hesitate. We had to take away that. This is your job. That's your job. No, we want everybody to be able to answer the questions that come to you. Mm -hmm. And certainly there's going to be things that the funeral director needs to address, but our administrative staff can address a ton of stuff that doesn't need to go to the funeral director. Right. Yeah. Great. So you worked through, I know COVID's not over, but you've worked through the majority of COVID, at least at the height. How did 
COVID affect you, your team? And what were you seeing from the families that you were serving during the height of COVID? Took a big sigh. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It was rough. It was really rough. I mean, even just to maintain a semblance of staffing during the height of COVID, like when it all kind of started. So, you know, February kind of happened when everything started. And then as March got in and there was the two week lockdown. And then I think those couple of first months were the hardest of just trying to even get staff comfortable enough to come to work yeah. and and just manage anything, really. So it was tough. <laughs> and I'm trying to think about families. I feel like, honestly, families were pretty understanding within that first time period of just like the world is shut down. There's only so much we can do when we got vital records offices closed and we're saying, well, I'm sorry, the offices are just closed. I'm not going to be able, I don't know when I'll be able to get you a death certificate. I feel like for the most part, families during that time were fairly understanding. But the longer it went on, just the more exhausting it got, trying to manage staff and just keep staff. We had some turnover during that time just because people weren't comfortable coming to work. And just trying to keep things moving was challenging for sure. Yeah. And we, you know, as a software provider to the funeral industry, we obviously saw major changes in the data of case management arrangements online and all that stuff. But how do you think COVID affected death care and what long-term effects and lasting effects from COVID do you think will persist as we move into the future? Yeah. As I look back, you know, if we weren't already set up to efficiently have families arrange online, I just don't know how we would have made it. It would have been a whole nother ballgame of how do we get this done? And I imagine there was a ton of funeral homes who were just grasping to do anything, to get documents signed, to set up any kind of account for electronic signatures. So for us, because we were already doing online arrangements, we were able to transition to say, okay, all of our arrangements are going to be online, especially when that kind of lockdown was in place. Even if we could have a family in the door, many of them didn't want to come in. They wanted to be able to do things from home. So for us to be able to transition fully online was very helpful for us. And honestly, that's probably how we survived it. But also what we found is once we were able to open doors back up, people still didn't want to come in. Like we were expecting it to go back to, I'm trying to think what the split would have been. Maybe like a 60-40 split on people who wanted to do online arrangements just off the bat versus people who wanted to come in. And I would still with probably stayed around 80% of people who want to just take care of things online, even after the lift of people being able to come in. So I think what it did is really just accelerate that, that people understood, like you can actually just do this online. What do I need to come to you for? Like, do I have to come to you? That was the question we got a lot. Do I have to come in? Well, no, you don't. And so I think what that did is accelerated that change, which probably would have been coming eventually, but not nearly as quick as it did. And I just don't know that it will go back. I haven't seen any evidence that it will. So I I just don't think it's for those people who can efficiently range online. It's just going to continue. Yeah, I think more and more people making funeral arrangements Mm -hmm. will just be more digitally native now and in the future. So I don't think that that trend will reverse. And I even think that like our split for online versus in-person arrangements was probably like nine to one. And even after it lifted, we were encouraging people just because our volume was so high and we wanted the fridge space. 
we started to view in-person arrangements as an inefficiency in a way. That was kind of a shame that it got to that point. And a lot of that was due to understaffing too, because it was beneficial for us all to be at our desks available to answer the phone and help on our computers rather than having to get up from our desk, go downstairs to an arrangement office and generally have a longer arrangement process, which fine to do for whoever really wanted it or really needed it. Yeah. But when we were really stretched thin with staff, that those were, they were hard. They mm-hmm. were hard. Took away from yeah. entering vitals, took away from answering phones upstairs, that sort of stuff. Absolutely. And the other thing with having multiple locations is that we could efficiently help each other out between locations without having so many in-person arrangements. If somebody was closer, you know, 15 miles across town, well, it didn't matter. Like our team that was 15 miles the other direction could get on the phone and help that person and be able to make those arrangements just as efficiently as if they were right down the road. So that was another thing that really saved us is that we just had to say, okay, whatever staff we've got in the office, this is how many families we need to get called today. We need to get their arrangements started, walk through it all. It just allowed us to work more efficiently as a team to get all of those arrangements complete. And you're right, because if you have to sit down with a family, it is more time consuming than doing it online. And yeah, if you can do it efficiently, I don't see the drawback. So I want to bring up a point. You guys definitely have mentioned about and talked about efficiencies and making it super easy. But does that mean that we're going to run the risk of commoditization within the industry and the profession? I understand that everyone's going to provide a different level of care. But if we're eliminating the whole experience and just making it easy, but transactional or more towards a transaction, is that going to endanger the death care profession? A little? I think that there is a way to do efficient arrangements compassionately. And I think on a human to human level, people understand when you're being compassionate with them versus not. And you can find ways to be efficient while being empathetic and compassionate. And if customer might not, they wouldn't even necessarily know what the alternative would be. I think maybe in the future, we might see in terms of commoditization, a dwindling of certain services or paying extreme premiums for certain services that require a funeral director or more what anything in the realm of a more traditional service, full service cremation, full service burial, long extended viewings, especially of third locations or second locations. Like I think we could see those be at an even higher premium than they are now. Yeah, I agree with that. And I mean, if you can do it compassionately, which I agree, families can read that even on the phone, they'll be able to tell. So if you're being genuine and you're presenting the information, I don't think that we're necessarily running the risk of when we're talking about maybe cremation services, right? Because that's going to be needed. Um, It's just who people are going to go to for it. So I could see how other services are either going to just dwindle entirely and maybe that's going to be more of a geographic thing about where that's going to happen first. I also just feel like people are having less and less funerals. I think the other thing that COVID did was that people weren't allowed to really have funerals during that time for a certain period, but they figured out something else. They did a celebration of life. They did something virtual. And we didn't really see those pick up a whole lot after you were able to have them again, too. And maybe that still had to do with like some some people couldn't travel or whatnot, but I think people found alternatives and I don't know that that will stop either. Do you think that opens up an opportunity, though, for funeral directors to 
play more of a role in the external, non-traditional funeral space in maybe party planning or putting together events or luncheons that are maybe not within the funeral home, but still managed by the funeral director? I mean, they are kind of the first ones there, or do you just feel like that's going to be out of their hands? Where do you see this going? I think it's totally separate. I do. I just don't feel like families are looking to a funeral director for that. I feel like families have their plan. I feel like either they're tied to a community that has that together for them, or they've got something else figured out. I feel like even when we, maybe we had a family who wanted to have a funeral, but they weren't affiliated to a church or a specific community where they had an event space to do that. Those were very few and far between. And for us to come up and say, okay, well, there's this community center or this place or that place, they would generally figure it out without our help. And it was like we could make recommendations, but they were most likely getting those things from other people. Yeah. Are you talking about specifically prior to disposition services or are you talking about like memorial services after and party planning after, like as as part of a memorial? Just in general, I mean... Recently, within the past month, I've actually been to two funerals. One was a Catholic one, so it was very well established what the process was going to be and what it was going to be like. It was in a church and all that. And, you know, I definitely can see that that's always probably going to have its place within death care, right? Like the church and the religious ones are going to be very set. But I also did go to a celebration of life that was held at a VFW hall six months later. I know the funeral home that took care of the it was my great aunt, but I knew the funeral home that took care of them, but they weren't present or part of the, you know, hall part. But as an optimistic part of me thinks that if you're the first person that someone comes to when the death happens, right? And it maybe I don't know how to figure that out now, but I do see that there could be this channel that does turn into something where you kind of take off your funeral director hat and put on this planner hat. But I don't know if anyone's successfully done that yet. It's possible. I'm biased, Tyler, because our approach very proactively when given that scenario to help with a memorial service was to say, why would you want our help as a middleman that's going to charge you more for these services when you could go to your local park for free and have it catered by your favorite barbecue place or have it in your backyard that's free and make their favorite foods and put a portrait of that your loved one on an easel and remember them in your own home setting? I very actively turned down those opportunities so that families would take ownership and responsibility of that celebration to make it personal for their loved one and also to protect our staff too. We were too thin and that wasn't the time to start expanding product offerings. So our narrative of that was very anti that, I would say, but at the same time, trying to be as helpful as possible to families giving them ideas about what they could do through the lens of trying to make it personal and less expensive for them. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. We would offer that, you know, if somebody wanted us to be at a memorial service, but we eventually just took it off our GPL as an offering because it's not an efficient use of our time either. Because sure, we can go to your memorial service and stand at the front door and hand out memorial folders, but there's nothing really else for us to do there. So you can pay us to come and show up as a funeral director at your memorial service. And we've probably not been in the loop for all the planning of the memorial service and all the personalization of it. I don't feel like it's a good value for the customer to pay for it, one. And then two, mm-hmm. 
it's not efficient use of your time when you're at a high volume place and you're really trying to be efficient. It's just not a good use of time. Got it. Okay. You guys are definitely coming at it from a more high volume perspective. It's also for every other guest at that service, they would think that that director is responsible for the entire event and then held accountable for the lack of planning or logistics that the family might have misstepped. So you're actually putting yourself in harm's way, maybe unnecessarily. It's negative publicity. <laughs> yeah. I see. Yeah. Negative advertising. Yeah. Yeah. No good deed goes unpunished there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And honestly, we found this a lot when a family would come to do an ID viewing, right? We very clearly explained to the person in our arrangement conference what an ID viewing looks like, that it's minimal, minimal preparation, minimal cremation container. And who can come to that? And that doesn't always get clearly communicated to the people that are going to show up. So you have these people showing up with these shocked looks on their faces, like expecting a full viewing and a casket and a nice setup. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it ends up being bad for us because we have all these people who showed up expecting one thing when it wasn't communicated to them by the family member what they were walking into. And so ultimately, it's like, oh, I don't we don't want to use them like that's not what we would do for a viewing. But they weren't the decision maker in that process. Mm -hmm. I see what you're saying, Tyler. And maybe that could work. It's interesting. I don't know. I almost feel like with the push towards being online, I think what we're actually going to see, and I don't know that it'll stay forever, but I think we're going to see funeral homes needing maybe less funeral directors and more administrative assistants, where you can have more administrative staff who can send out forms, who can collect a payment over the phone, who can do this and that. And we're going to see probably less funeral directors. And part of that is just because I think there's been funeral directors leaving the business. I mean, I think through COVID really accelerated that too. But the other thing is, I really feel like funeral directors that are going to school now, they might never work a traditional funeral, depending on where they're at. You know, a funeral director maybe in Los Angeles or Portland or or Seattle or a high volume area where they're doing a lot of cremations. Those funeral directors will never know what a traditional funeral looks like if they're working at a, at a cremation-based firm. Yeah. So it's just an interesting turning point right now, I feel like. So I'm sitting here with two funeral directors who are no longer practicing. So this question is kind of to Ashley, but I think we'll have an answer to this as well. Is funeral director burnout real? And if so, how do you think it's affecting the industry right now? Yeah, it's for sure 100% real. It gets very tiring and exhausting sometimes to be able to deal with not only that many people that are grieving, but just the in and out of the funeral home and funeral director in life. So, and ultimately that's one of the reasons I left. I was just, after getting through COVID and whatnot, I was just absolutely exhausted and a level of burnout I've just never been at. So I think the way that it's affecting the industry right now is that people are just leaving the industry. Like I have multiple friends that are just not in the industry any longer looking for something that's slower paced. And there's, I don't know, I also feel like you can get jaded. I mean, dealing with families every day that are sometimes can be really difficult, that also gets very exhausting. The ins and outs of like trying to smooth things over for people or or help them understand things and yeah, it's tough. Will, did you go through the same thing? Yeah, I did. I burned out during COVID. And actually, you pointed out something about the first three or four months of COVID. 
And I thought that was really accurate in terms of it being this very unique kind of the worst part because it extended after that and with lots of deaths and different strains and so on and so forth. But that first three to four months was just complete chaos. You remember seeing the news about the research and best practices changing every six to 12 hours based on what we were figuring out about C-19 and trying as a funeral director to take that information in that's just being thrown at you from so many different sources and constantly changing, trying to create policy around it, then trying to communicate that policy and then implement it with competent leadership. And then the next day, change everything again. And that to me got old very, very quickly and made the work extremely difficult. And then we got to kind of a homeostasis with the policies and then more attrition from the workforce started coming, lower morale, just getting beat down on a day-to-day basis, knowing that when you wake up, you already know exactly what kind of conversations you're going to have to have with your team and families throughout the day and knowing that they're going to be unpleasant. And facing that day in and day out is extremely exhausting. So it has an expiration date, honestly, for me. And I didn't know that. I was planning on doing that my whole life. (laughs) Honestly, (laughs) that's what I had thought, but it didn't turn out that way. Well, and just during COVID to not have the answers. It's like, Mm -hmm. you guys, the state just said this, like, I don't know why. I don't know when it's going to stop. I don't know if you'll ever be able to have a service or if you wait a week, if the ban, I don't know. Right. It was so taxing, so taxing. Mm-hmm. And you're right, just having to change policies so quick, change procedures, and then just try and keep up with it all. Like, mm-hmm. okay, it was this way last week. If somebody was exposed, if an employee was exposed, what do I have to have them do now? Mm-hmm. Do they need a test before they come to work? All of that. It was just mentally draining for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I loved my job. I did. I loved the company that I worked for. We had a great team. But during that time, it was just like so many times, just like, I don't know how much longer I can do this. It's just so mentally exhausting. And then you add in the unique timetables that funeral directors have. With having an in-house answering service, that helped us a lot because we didn't necessarily have to have a funeral director physically out doing removals in the night or anything like that. So we were able to kind of have our funeral directors mostly work kind of a nine to five. Yeah. During that COVID time, there was lots of hours and lots of trying to get things done. But as a general manager, never not being on call. If there's a problem, you're the one that's called. Or even if I'm just facilitating, well, you know, it's actually this person that would take care of that. So that led to a lot of it too, is just always, always having to be answering my phone about something else going on and really feeling like there was no separation. Mm -hmm. And COVID had massive effects on that. It was exhausting because, yeah, I love sitting down with the family. Like my favorite thing about being a funeral director was being able to make an arrangement with the family, understand what their needs were, get their needs met and them say, wow, you made that so easy. Thank you. That's what I loved about funeral directing. And I still like that. But I also feel to your point for COVID, those first couple of months, I feel like there was a lot of understanding on the family parts Yeah, because everything was kind of up in the air. But I also feel like that got less and less the longer things went on. It did. I think people in the world were just exhausted and frustrated. And that came out in all sorts of ways. 
And I feel like families started to get more and more and more difficult to work with and just more quick to anger. Yeah, I completely Mm -hmm. agree. And I thought I was crazy after like the first eight months and people were not tolerant of the messaging that we were gave them and more quick to anger, increase escalations to management and stuff like that with small problems and very demanding families, which exacerbates an already awful situation when our energy is being depleted. And then it just gets depleted at a faster rate with angrier families. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it starts to feel like a no-win situation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sorry. So you made it through COVID, at least the majority of the height of it, both of you. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can all agree that being a funeral director is not an easy job. There's nothing easy about it, both emotionally and physically. But did you practice self-care during COVID or just in general? Do you have any tips and tricks? Because I think we're all looking for these, but Mm -hmm. things to do to keep yourself sane and saying throughout? (laughs) Well, my advice would be do it. (laughs) Did I do it during COVID? No. And that Mm -hmm. probably just accelerated that burnout too. I mean, things were just crazy, right? I never knew being a mom and having my kids in daycare during that time if when I was also trying to work from home with my children home, like while they wouldn't be in daycare, it was just pure insanity. Like that period of time was like trying to have kids home. And and that went on for a couple of months. Oh my gosh, you guys, it was so hard. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) I just felt like there was no room for that. And then it just felt like it was like a very quick downhill sprint from there. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things that I've talked to Ashley about is that during that time at Crown, she was, you know, she grew her family. She had to go through COVID with children and also is a military wife. So parts of that time she was doing it on her own, just (laughs) having to deal with all of that, which is crazy to think for the things you had to go through. So it was a challenge. Yeah. And during that time, my husband actually got called away to help with COVID stuff in Texas. So he was gone for six weeks down on the border of Texas and Mexico, just helping with the situation down there. So it was brutal. That's probably what really accelerated the burnout for me was that period of trying to work with kids home and not being able to have daycare. And then as soon as they could go back to daycare, my husband leaving. So luckily it wasn't at the same time because I probably would have met my end and funeral service a lot sooner. (laughs) But yeah, it was a lot. Those two years were tough. Yeah. So we were talking earlier before we started recording about some of these alternative disposition options. So green burial, alcohol and hydrolysis, some of the bigger ones now are at least have made a lot of noises like resumation, which is the composting. What is your take, Ashley, on the adoption story of these alternative type and methods? Yeah, I remember when I was in mortuary school, even that's when they had kind of started with the idea. Or that's when I first heard about the idea anyways, about alkaline hydrolysis. And I think one of the alkaline hydrolysis companies who makes the machine had come out to do a presentation for us. And That's the first I kind of heard about it. And then it still wasn't until maybe seven years later that there was actually a machine in our area. We knew of one that was a couple hours away, but never had a family request for it. And then even when there was one in Portland, we probably only had a handful of families request for it, even when we advertised it. Meaning like we put it as a package on our GPL. It was right there front and center. So it just didn't take off. And I feel like those families that wanted it, they had a very specific reason 
for wanting it. And even though the price was higher, that's why they chose it. But I feel like for people who didn't have like strong ties to that, they didn't even consider it. And I think a lot of that was price-based. Honestly, it's more expensive. And I feel like the same for green burial. We would often have families say, you know, I'm interested in a green burial and we'd give them all their options and walk through all of the different things that go along that. And ultimately, because it was more expensive and significantly so, they didn't choose it. And I don't know a lot about resumation. I wasn't at that time working in an area where that was even an option, but I would lump it into that same group as I'm not really sure it's going to take off the way that people think it will. I think there's going to be a certain portion of the population that will be interested in that, but they also have to have, to me, a deeper reason if it's for the love of the environment or something that they feel physically connected to that is going to make them choose that option. And then I think they won't have a barrier, whether it's price or not. But for a lot of the population that is price driven, I just don't see it taking off. Do you think if price, because I think as it gets more mainstream or gets more popular, prices always go down for things like that. Do you see (laughs) that if price wasn't a barrier to entry that you would see that more often or that there would be a bigger increase in that? Or do you feel like people are just used to the traditional and what's there so it's hard to change their minds? Well, I think it's two things. I think it's one... Yes, people know cremation. They understand what it is. It's been around for a long time and they're just more apt to choose it. Number two, for alkaline hydrolysis anyway, it's just not as efficient. So we could not run a alkaline hydrolysis business as efficiently as you can a cremation-based business because Mm -hmm. the time that it takes to do an alkaline hydrolysis, there is just no way you can be as efficient. And then you run into volume, you run into space issues. So when you're especially high volume like we are, you have X amount of room for decedents. And if you're cutting down your processing significantly by doing alkaline hydrolysis, you run out of space. And in fact, there's not one in the Portland area any longer. So to me, that's actually gone after being there for just a couple of years is another sign that if it's not going to take off in Portland, I don't know where it's going to take off. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's not going to take off an environment of low economic stability. Yeah. Where price has become a determining factor for families, not just a contributing factor anymore. I saw people with ties to certain services. And when they see the price tag for those services, they can't do it. Mm -hmm. So, and I completely agree about the logistical issue. You just can't do as many alkaline hydrolysis in a week than you could cremations. And even resumation takes months, I believe, to break down the body. Yeah, they're definitely limited by space. I think resumation's only available in Washington now. Yeah. Or a few states. It's beautiful, but it's just not for the masses. And I think the masses need inexpensive, compassionate cremation options. So Ashley, you stayed at the same company from apprentice to manager. Do you have a unique or funny story that you'd like to share from your time there? When I first started working at the business, we had what we called a decedent care instruction form. So it was an internal form that we would fill out as funeral directors, like instructing the next set of people to carry on through the service. And we also had a service instruction form. So if the funeral director that met with the family wasn't going to be able to do the service, it was kind of their instructions to kind of hand off. And just the way it was worded, the first question was like military honors, and you would say yes or no. And the next question was watch placement, yes or no. And I can't tell you for how long I was like, there's a 
military watch. Like if there's a special watch that people get placed, like I was so confused by that. <laughs> it took me the longest time to realize like, no, they're meaning like watch the placement of the casket into the ground. But just like the longest time, I was just like, what is the military watch placement? Like, is there some kind of military honor that I just don't know about? Like, <laughs> simple miscommunications like that. Yeah, there's a checkbox I mean, on the flag form. You click it and it uh, yeah, will also exactly. send you the flag and the watch. Nope. You didn't, uh, yeah, you've the never seen one? certificate and the watch. <laughs> so just like funny, like wording things like that that you'd catch every once in a while. And you're like, well, somebody just, you'd think that makes sense, but doesn't always. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like funny funeral stories. I mean, interesting ones for sure. I don't know if funny is the right word. <laughs> yeah. Maybe funny to me is not funny for yeah. everybody. You see a lots of people exemplify not so great human behavior and also some yeah. lovely human behavior. So yeah, it's never dull. Yeah. Never That's dull. for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. So Ashley, what do you think death care looks like in 10 years? I'm going to try to ask all of our guests this and I kind of want to get an outlook of what you think death care is going to look like in 10 years. Yeah, I think we're always going to have some of the population that is going to be seeking the traditional funeral, right? Kind of like you talked about, Tyler, like maybe the Catholic community is always going to have that very traditional Catholic mass, whether that stays more burial oriented or more cremation oriented. I'm not going to be surprised if that goes more cremation oriented eventually too. But otherwise, I do see it becoming more and more transactional as we look to the future that maybe funeral homes aren't even going to have as big of a a role as they do now. And I don't know that we'll really get to the point where it's more like direct disposition companies are having a bigger footprint. But I do feel like people are going to to maybe not be having as many services or adding on as many services to their creations that the funeral home needs to be involved in rather. Because mm-hmm. I can see still people continuing to add on things that are like, you know, the keepsake oriented, whether it's merchandise oriented. So the pieces of glass that people do or personalized items like that. But as far as families coming in and doing viewings and things like that, I don't know. I see those getting smaller and smaller, honestly. So I just don't know that there might just be a greater divide between traditional funeral homes and people who are offering more of a direct option. Makes sense. All right, Ashley, are you here to promote your TikTok? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, find me at TikTok. Or your YouTube channel, your your Twitch channel? I am not. I am not. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much, Ashley, for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you ever want to know more, please find us at directcremation.com. 